Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. You doing good? I, um, I'll share more in just a little bit, but I've spent the past two weeks in a camper. Um, and a lot of light comes in through all kinds of nooks and crannies in a camper. And so it seems like every morning, which it's hard to tell when it's morning this time of year, but every morning around 5.30 or 6, my body's like, must be time to get up. And then around noon, it's like, it must be time to go to bed because it was way, I know, some of you are up like at 4 a.m., having your devotions, hand grinding your coffee, whatever. Um, <clears throat> tomorrow, um, as you heard, we head out for Uganda um, and we get to be with um, a longtime missionary and mission that Church on the Rock has partnered with, um, but a guy named Steve Mayanja. And if you know Steve Mayanja, um, he is Ugandan, and he is all kinds of fired up when it comes to preaching. Um, so I'm super excited to be with them. And then also, um, uh, several people are going, but there are a handful of them that I'm super excited to see in an African Pentecostal church, um, because they will not have a choice but to dance during worship. So get ready, Dalton. All right. <clears throat> we are in this series uh, entitled Wanderers. We're in the book of Numbers, and I want to kick us off um, not in the book of Numbers. I want to kick us off in Deuteronomy, and my title today is How to Make 40 Days Last a Lifetime could be good or it could be bad. We don't talk about Korah. We don't talk about Korah, no, no. Anybody? Really? Am I the only one with kids? My goodness. There's a great uh, rendition of that called We Don't Talk About Pluto because it's not a planet anymore apparently and then it was a planet again and now it's not a planet, it's just a gaseous ball. Anyways, instead of we don't talk about Bruno, it's, all right, whatever, you can look it up yourself. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it lasted a week, it's probably gone off the internet forever. Deuteronomy chapter 26, we're looking at verse 1 through 11. This is when the children of Israel are going to enter the land that has been promised by God. These are the good days. And he's saying, when you bring the first of your harvest, I've got some instructions for you. So when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession. And you have conquered it and settled there. Put some of the first produce from each crop you harvest into a basket and bring it to the designated place of worship the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Go to the priest in charge at that time and say to him, with this gift I acknowledge to the Lord your God that I have entered the land he swore to our ancestors he would give us. The priest will then take the basket from your hand and set it before the altar of the Lord your God. Now listen to this. You must then say in the presence of the Lord your God, my father, Jacob, was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. 
His family arrived, few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. When the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. He heard our cries and saw our hardship, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and powerful arm, with overwhelming terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. Remember that part of the story? It was a good part of the story. Back in Exodus, okay. Verse 9. He brought us to this place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. And now, O Lord, I have brought you the first portion of the harvest you have given me from the ground. Then place the produce before the Lord your God and bow to the ground and worship before him. Afterward, you may go and celebrate. Here's what's interesting to me in this passage. He's kind of telling their story. He's telling their history. And he gets here to verse 8, and he says, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand and his strong arm, and then, ta-da, he brought us to this place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know if you know this, but there's some stuff that happened in between verse 8 and verse 9. In fact, some really significant stuff happened between verse 8 and verse 9. In fact, 26 of the 40 chapters in Exodus, all of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy happened between verses 8 and 9. Some stuff went down in between getting delivered from Egypt and being brought into the land of promise. Have you ever left out a part of the story that you didn't really want people to remember? You know, like... Over the years, I've had these experiences where, um, now you need to know this about me. I'm, I'm a really high compassion, high sympathy, yeah. high mercy. <laughs> I'm, I don't tend to be any of those things. And so when horrific things happen, as long as my friends survive, I find endless delight in telling the story of their epic fail. What I often forget is that I had my own events somewhere in that, series. It'd be sort of like this. Um, like you're telling a story. It's you and your friends, and you all went to camp together one time, and you're like, remember when Jimmy was so scared of the bears at camp that he misfired his pepper spray and shot himself in the face? <laughs> and Jimmy's sitting there, and Jimmy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Wasn't that the same night that you peed in your sleeping bag? Like, oh, I wasn't going to tell that part of the story. Like, there's parts of stories that you want to leave out. That's what's happening here, by the way. A significant portion, like God delivered us when we cried to him out of the land of Egypt, and then, ta-da, here we are in the promised land. But there's some stuff that went down between verse 8 and verse 9. And most of us dislike living in the space between the promise and taking possession. That's a really frustrating space. In fact, it's a space that seems like it could take an eternity sometimes. And we often don't like to remember that season, and we certainly don't like to live in that season, the space between the thing that God had promised us and the moment when we actually take possession of it, because that's a really difficult place to live in. But it's actually in this middle, in this in-between ground, that sin in our life is spotlighted. 
It's in this middle ground, in this in-between place that our character is chiseled. Those things that God doesn't want as part of who we are get chipped away. That can be a painful process. It's also in this place that the rebellion that's in our hearts gets rooted out. And that is exactly what's happening with the nation of Israel between verse 8 and verse 9. In fact, the entire book of Numbers is dedicated to this story. Numbers is the story that happens between verse 8 and verse 9. It's the in the wilderness. Now, a lot has happened since we started in January back into the scriptures, and we're going straight through the Bible, right? So we're starting in Genesis, and we did Exodus, and now Leviticus, and now we're in Numbers. And in Genesis, you've got the creation of the world. That was a pretty big deal major event. The creation of the world, you've got the Tower of Babel, you've got Noah and the flood and the ark, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, safety in Egypt. And then in Exodus, you discover that they are now in slavery in the land of Egypt. You've got Moses, you've got Israel's deliverance, the 10 plagues, the 10 commandments, the building of the tabernacle. It's a lot of stuff. In Leviticus, you've got the laws and the sacrifices, and then you've got the laws and the sacrifices, and then you've got some laws and some sacrifices, and you get it? Now here we are in the book of Numbers. Now, Numbers, as Garland referenced last week, um, is a little bit of a misleading title, and it's super exciting. Don't get me wrong, like, who doesn't want to read a book called Numbers? Um, But it's not actually the Hebrew name. For the book. The Hebrew name for the book of Numbers is Remidbar. Remidbar is um, in the wilderness, which sounds a lot more exciting, but it got titled in the Latin Vulgate, it got titled Numbers because the book begins with a census, a counting of the people, and it ends with a census. But they are two very different countings, and they're there for very specific reasons. One tells you who comes into the wilderness, and the other tells you who will leave the wilderness. How to make 40 days last a lifetime. As I said, we just returned from Homer. By that, I mean last night we returned from Homer. And by we, I mean um, my wife, myself, our three girls, and all three of our dogs in a 32-foot camper for a lifetime, it felt like. It, we, were, we were driving back, and as you often see in between Homer and Anchorage, um, we saw a hitchhiker on the side of the road with a dog, and as we drove by, Kitri said, why not? It couldn't possibly make a difference. Um, it, it was so packed in the camper. But there are some trips, when you take the trip, you're like, I just want this to last forever. Have you ever had a vacation like that? Uh, was it with your kids or without, without your kids? Um, no, like there are moments when you just want it to go on. My girls always feel this way by the time we get to the end of a vacation. Um, they're like, why do we have to leave last night when we got home? Can we just turn around and go back to Homer right now? And they just wanted it to last forever. And then there are other trips that you feel like they're going to last forever, like the drive back from Homer to Wasilla. 
That trip lasted a lifetime. But it's interesting when you think about like what makes us want to linger versus why would God make us linger? Why would he stretch something out? Numbers 16, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. This will be our story for today. We're looking at yet another rebellion in the nation of Israel. One day, Korah, son of Isar, a descendant of Kohath, son of Levi, conspired with Dathan and Abram, the sons of Elab, and On, the son of Peleth, from the tribe of Reuben. They incited a rebellion against Moses, along with 250 other leaders of the community, all prominent members of the assembly. They united against Moses and Aaron and said, You have gone too far. The whole community of Israel has been set apart by the Lord, and he is with all of us. What right do you have to act as though you are greater than the rest of the Lord's people? I don't know if you've ever had someone incite a crowd against you, gather all the people they can get to listen to their complaint, and then get them all on board with coming against you and your leadership or your decision. It could feel that way even as a parent when all of your kids gang up on you or as they get older they're processing through issues of their heart and they write you a letter and say, here's what you did. But in this moment, there's an accusation leveled against Moses and Aaron. And the accusation is this, you're withholding something from us. Like, what makes you so special? Who said you should be in charge? Aren't we all holy people? And here's what you need to understand. The sons of Korah, Korah and Korah's family, his lineage, they're from the tribe of Levi, and they have very specific holy responsibilities when it comes to the tabernacle of the Lord, but they are not the high priest. So they're in a significant, important role in the nation of Israel, a holy role in the nation of Israel, and yet it's not enough for them. What they're really interested in is they're interested in authority and power and control. Now, this isn't the first time that Moses has been criticized or even accused of being prideful. That's really what they're accusing him of. Like, who do you think you are? What makes you so special? Who died and anointed you king? In fact, the other time that it happened is in Numbers chapter 12, and it gets really personal this time because it's a family dispute, a sibling rivalry. Numbers 12, verses 1 through 8. While they were at Hazoroth, Miriam and Aaron, his brother and sister, criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. Now, there was nothing that said he couldn't marry a Cushite woman, it wasn't forbidden by God, and yet Moses has married this woman, and now they are criticizing him for having done so. And they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? But the Lord heard them. Now Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. 
That would be a strange thing to write about yourself. Listen, I just want you to know, I am the most. Like, there is no one more humble. I'm the most humblest of humble people on earth. But it's the Lord saying this about Moses. So immediately the Lord called to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam and said, go out to the tabernacle, all three of you. This is when you and your other two siblings did something and mom's about to have a conversation with like, I want you out here right now, all three of you. But I didn't do it. All three of you right now. Then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud. Aaron and Miriam, he called, and they stepped forward. Now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, he is the one I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is, so why were you not afraid to criticize my servant, Moses? Why are they criticizing him? They're, they're criticizing him because he made a decision they didn't like, but that's really just an excuse. The criticism is actually really rooted in something else, and it's jealousy. God has given you something that he hasn't given me, and it's not fair, it's not right, I deserve it. Too. I want it also. I, I should be in that position as well. And what they don't realize is it actually fundamentally means nothing about whether God loves them as much as he loves Moses or whether he has a purpose for them as much as he has a purpose for Moses. They simply are jealous of the position that Moses is in. And then, so this is Numbers 12. Remember, we're in Numbers 16. This is Numbers 12. And Numbers 13, they arrive at the borders of the land that God has promised them. Like the whole story could be over right here. They show up in chapter 13. They take 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel. They send them into the promised land. They're in the promised land. They search it out. They bring back all kinds of amazing produce. There are 80-inch bull moose antlers they bring back. They're like, I mean, everything is just extraordinary that's in the land. But... They're giants. And they feel like they look like grasshoppers compared to the giants that are in the land. If we go into the land, the giants are going to crush us. I mean, it is a land that is so, so good. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's everything that God promised, but we don't believe we can take it. If we try to, we'll get crushed. And fear sets in by the report of 10 of the spies that come back. And the people are so engrossed in terror and fear, and they begin to grumble and complain all over again. Numbers 14, verse 1 through 4. Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt... Or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? 
Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to slavery. I mean, call it what it is. They aren't saying these things have happened. They're saying we're afraid these things will happen. But if history is any indicator of their potential future, they should look back at what just happened in Egypt and come to the logical conclusion that if God gave us this land, if he's calling us to this land, and if this land is exactly what he said that it was, then giants are nothing for him. Like, he would be our deliverer. But we have really short-term memories when it comes to the goodness of God in our lives. And in this moment, they're like, we need a different leader. Like, this can't possibly be the plan that God has. Why? Because something happened? No, nothing's happened. Yet, you're just afraid of a potential future that the enemy is telling you will be your reality. But your children have not been killed. And your land has not been plundered. And your wives have not been taken. And none of those things have actually happened. You're just living in fear that they will happen which is a really dangerous place to live, making your decisions based on the fear of what might be rather than faith in what God can do. Oh man, that'll preach, Pastor. I know, I know. It's such a good word for me. The question isn't, will I be criticized in leadership? It's, what will I do when I am? Whatever sphere of influence or leadership that you have in life, the question for Moses is not a question of, will I be criticized? He's discovered he will be criticized frequently and often. In fact, fact, as I read through numbers, I like you guys more and more. You're just an amazing group of people. Like, whatever I would face in leadership pales in comparison to what Moses is walking out on a regular basis in a really critical situation. Now, Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who come back full of faith, the younger generation who are giving a good report, and they're like, no, no, we can do this. You got to understand, like, God will deliver us. Don't shrink back now. We're on the cusp of crossing into the promise, and the consequences of living in fear rather than faith are going to be dire, and they plead with the people, and so the people all get together and are like, okay, what do you think about what Joshua and Caleb are saying? I know what I think about it. Let's kill them also. That's their conclusion. The two with faith who are calling them to something greater, they conclude that we need to get rid of these voices of faith in our life. And we're going to deliberately choose to only listen to and live in the place of fear. God is not at all happy about this. In fact, this is one of several times that the Lord comes to Moses and he's like, listen, Mo." I want to kill all of them. If you would just move over, because I don't want to kill you, if you would just scoot over a little bit, I can smite, smote, smitten all of them right now. And this is literally what the Lord says, and I will just start over with you. Like, we'll have a new family, we'll start this whole thing over again, because these people 
And what you will discover over and over and over again, in this case as well, is that Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God and plead for the lives of the very people who are rebelling against them. That sound familiar? Like this guy named Jesus who's hanging on a cross and he looks out at the people who are bringing his death about and he says, Father, forgive them. I stand in between. I stand in the gap. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Moses does this over and over for the people of Israel. And he does it in this case. And so Numbers 14, here's what the Lord says in response to Moses' plea. Then the Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested, but as surely as I live, as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter that land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness, but again and again they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. This is chapter 14. We're about to get to chapter 16 where Korah's rebellion takes place. But here's what you need to understand as the setup is in chapter 14, they have made a deliberate choice. All of them have made a deliberate choice to not enter the promise. And in so doing, they will discover that the consequence is that they will experience how to turn a 40-day expedition into the promised land into a lifetime of wandering. The Lord speaks all this to Moses. Moses comes back and tells it to the people, and the people are like, wait, wait, don't we get a do-over? Give us just a timeout, and then let us see. He's like, I'll give you a timeout. It's going to be a 40-year timeout that you're going to have. Because sometimes the consequences of fear instead of faith are a lifetime of missing what God had for you. The people have complained from the time they left Egypt, the place of slavery, the place they were complaining about to God, the place they were pleading for deliverance from. And then they refused to enter the land, and now Moses is standing before Korah and 250 prominent leaders in the nation of Israel who did not step up to the plate like Caleb and Joshua did, and they are now accusing Moses. Numbers 16, verse 4, you'll have to get your Bibles out. I know it's a real challenge, but after this passage, you're on your own. When Moses heard what they were saying, he fell face down on the ground. Then he said to Korah and his followers, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show us who belongs to him and who is holy. Then we will see whom the Lord chooses as his holy one. You Levites have gone too far. Now listen, you Levites. Does it seem insignificant to you that the God of Israel has chosen you from among all the community of Israel to be near him so you can serve in the Lord's tabernacle and stand before the people to minister to them? Korah, he has already given this special ministry to you and your fellow Levites. Are you now demanding the priesthood as well? 
The Lord is the one you and your followers are really revolting against. For who is Aaron that you are complaining about him? There's a tendency to look to whoever's in charge, whoever's ruling in a nation, whoever's in the place of leadership, and to say, I don't like them. I'm going to rebel against them. I don't like their decisions. But he's identifying a New Testament principle here as well, that the Lord sets people in authority. He's the one who places them there. And over the years in ministry specifically, when I was in a youth pastor role or in a worship leader role or any of those sorts of things, I sort of fundamentally concluded going into that position that God had put my senior pastor there because that's the person that he wanted there. And short of any gross moral failure or obvious reason, my job was to follow, to submit. We hate that word, don't we? How many of you, like, you just love the word submit? Like, it's one of your favorites. You have it tattooed, right? Like, it's like, no, right here, submit. I love it. So good. It's an internal challenge for all of us. It doesn't matter what role you're actually in. It's a challenge for all of us. And what Moses identifies here is he identifies you're fighting against Aaron. You want Aaron's position. Is it not enough in the position that God's given you? Do you also want the priesthood? Are you also going to grope for that as well? Well, let me tell you, Aaron didn't put himself there. God put him there. Why are you raging against Aaron? Why don't we just all get together and have a conversation with God about this? Man, I'll tell you, there are times I would love, like, Oh, yeah, yeah. Why don't we all just get together? God's going to show up in a pillar of fire, and he'll settle this matter. Anybody like, no, no, my enemies who are bashing me on Facebook or who are saying whatever about me, like, let's just get together, and then let's find out from the Lord. He'll tell us. Don't worry about it. That would be so nice sometimes. At least I think it would. Here's what I would say. The person who demands a leadership role has likely never carried the weight of its responsibilities. What I can tell you, just like looking at the life of Moses and Aaron and dealing with the people of God and contending for the people and then the people contending against them, like the person who is grabbing for, the person who demands a leadership role, most likely has never actually carried the weight of responsibility that comes from caring deeply for people who may be against you sometimes. Because once you understand the weight, I can tell you, Moses would have gladly offloaded the responsibility at any moment. Like, Lord, is there someone else? Because I can hand this off. Like, I'm, I don't really need the trouble that these people are bringing me. Like, I, the person who demands power, authority, leadership has likely never carried the weight. So then Moses summoned Dathan, verse 12. Dathan, Abram, and the sons of Elab, but they replied, we refuse to come before you. Isn't it enough? Now listen to this, in light of who kept them from entering the land. Isn't it enough that you brought us out of Egypt, a land flowing with milk and honey? Because that's how I remember it, right? A land flowing with milk and honey to kill us here in this wilderness and that you treat us like your subjects? What more? You haven't brought us into another land flowing with milk and honey. You haven't given us a new homeland with fields and vineyards. Are you trying to fool these men? We will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offerings. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, and I have never hurt a single one of them. 
Meanwhile, Korah had stirred up the entire community against Moses and Aaron, and they had all gathered at the tabernacle entrance. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to the whole community, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, get away from these people so that I may destroy them. This is a refrain in the book of Numbers. Like, here we are again. I can take them out right now, Moses. And Moses and Aaron do the exact same thing they've done every other time. They fall on their faces before God. They cry out on behalf of the people for God's great name, that it would be made great in all the earth. God, do not destroy them. Why would you destroy everyone for the sin of one person? So God does this miraculous and horrific thing. I just um, heard Pastor Dale had sent us a message last night that a sinkhole opened up on KGB. Yep, yeah. In, in fact, there's a time portal inside of it. Like, um, you, know, you guys had to go around through Big Lake up into Talkeetna, then through Fairbanks, and then you were able to make it here this morning. Like a sinkhole they discovered. They were doing some road work. and God opens up the earth and swallows Korah and all of those involved in the rebellion and then closes it up over them. The people hear their screams as they're falling into this hole and the Lord is making a very specific point. He's saying, listen, I determine who my people are, who I call to leadership, but rebellion, rebellion, dissension, division, I cannot tolerate in the community of faith. Can you imagine if some of these things happened today? Sometimes I'm like, God, just show up and show off. But people would misinterpret it, I'm certain, right? They would like, oh, whoa, that's what God's like. But God is making a point early, early in the story about how he functions in the community of believers. Everyone's terrified. Uh, the earth opens up, swallows them, and then some of them get burned up. 250 of them get burned up with fire coming from the presence of the Lord. And then in Numbers 16, verse 40, 41, directly following all of this, it says this, but the very next morning, the whole community of Israel began muttering again against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the Lord's people. And Moses is like, what do you think? Like, I split the ground open and swallowed them up? No, it was the Lord. The Lord's the one who did this. The Lord's the one who dealt with this issue. The Lord's the one who judged between us. The Lord is the one who did it. Why are you blaming me for this? And yet again, the Lord's anger breaks out against the people. And Moses says to Aaron, take some of the fire from the altar of the Lord. Go out among the people and stand right where the plague is coming through. And I want you to stop it. I want you to save the people. I want you to stand in the gap for them. And I'm thinking, Moses, have you not picked up what's going on here? Like they are never going to quit complaining. Just let the plague go through the people. But Moses is displaying the heart of God. He's displaying the mercy of God. It's this tension between the judgment of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord. And he stands in the gap again for the people of Israel. Here's how to make 40 days last a lifetime in three easy steps. Step number one, choose grumbling rather than gratitude. 
It's guaranteed the more time you spend complaining about whatever it is in your life that you want to complain about, that person you're married to or that job that you have or those kids that you have or those parents that you have, like if you can spend your time fixated on all the things that are wrong in your life, if you can spend your time grumbling and complaining, gratitude will evaporate from your life and you will be guaranteed to spend a lifetime in the wilderness. And the second thing you can do, it's an easy step to make 40 days last a lifetime, is you can choose fear rather than faith. Now, I know God said he could, but I don't actually believe that he could. In fact, I believe what will happen, even though it may not have happened yet, I know better than God knows, and God's calling you to faith, but if you will deliberately choose fear, you can turn 40 days into a lifetime in the wilderness. And choose it over and over and over again. Accuse God of things he has not done yet instead of acknowledge what he already has accomplished in your life and you will get the privilege of spending an entire lifetime in the wilderness. Choose grumbling over gratitude. Choose fear over faith. And then choose jealousy rather than joyful submission. No, rather than finding those people in my life that I'm going to submit myself to, that I'm going to come under their leadership, I'm going to come under their direction, instead of doing that, I'm going to spend my life jealous of what everyone else has. Jealous of their position, jealous of their prestige, jealous of the opportunities that they get. I'm going to spend my life looking at what everyone else has and wishing I had that. I was them. I was there. That's a guaranteed way to spend the rest of your life wandering in the wilderness. Choose grumbling over gratitude. Choose fear over faith. And choose jealousy over joyful submission. And you can turn 40 days into a lifetime of wondering. Israel did. It never seemed to fully register for them. Numbers begins with a census. And Numbers also ends with a census. And it's the census of the survivors of the wandering. And I want you to hear this. Numbers 26 Verse 9 through 11. Elab was the father of Nemuel, Dathan, and Abram. This Dathan and Abram are the same community leaders who conspired with Korah against Moses and Aaron, rebelling against the Lord. But the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with Korah, and fire devoured 250 of their followers. This served as a warning to the entire nation of Israel. Now listen to this, verse 11. However, the sons of Korah did not die that day. We're told in the passage in chapter 16, we're told that everyone who's at the tent, their family members, their friends, anyone who's at the tent with them when the ground opens up are all swallowed and destroyed. But the sons of Korah, clearly had moved away from the judgment of the Lord. The Lord didn't kill Korah's sons for his sin. He allowed them to live. And here's what I've discovered over the years. Often one generation's failures very well may be the fuel for the next generation's faith. And this is what's extraordinary to me that the prophet Samuel, which we're going to be reading about real soon, the prophet Samuel is actually from the line of Korah. 
Not only that, but the sons of Korah even become the gatekeepers in the tabernacle of the Lord and then in the temple of the Lord. They are specifically assigned, the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, are assigned the job of being the gatekeepers in the tabernacle. They're also identified as some of David's mightiest warriors in the scriptures. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, it gives a description of them. They were so skilled with the bow and so loyal to the cause of the Lord that they could shoot the bow with both hands just as well, either way. Like, there are these extraordinary warriors who are used by God to bring David into his leadership. But I think the most enlightening piece is what I discovered in the Psalms. And I didn't connect the dots until fairly recently with this. But as you read through the Psalms, no less than 11 Psalms are actually attributed to the sons of Korah. They write them. And they're not just like normal Psalms. David is a little bit of an Eeyore sometimes. Like David is like, I lost my tail and all my friends are gone. I'll never find it again. It's going to rain today. Like, Lord, deliver me. And he's crying out. But, but when you read the Psalms of the sons of Korah, they are packed full of praise, gratitude, and humility. Psalm 44, listen to this. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. Why even put that in there? David knows that the rest of the story is just like a, it's only like this many pages back, right? Like right over here. Like he knows that the story of Korah is there and here's why it's put in. Here's why it's identified in here because one generation's failure very well may be the fuel for faith in the next generation, which it is for the descendants of Korah. They learned the lessons from what they saw in the wilderness. They didn't forget them. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. Oh God, we have heard it with our own ears. Our ancestors have told us of all you did in their day. In the days long ago, you drove out the pagan nations by your power and gave all the land to our ancestors. You crushed their enemies and set our ancestors free. They did not conquer the land with their swords. It was not their own strong arm that gave them victory. It was your right hand and strong arm and the blinding light from your face that helped them, for you loved them. You are my king and my God. You command victories for Israel. Only by your power can we push back our enemies. Only in your name can we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. I do not count on my sword to save me. You are the one who gives us victory over our enemies. You disgrace those who hate us. Oh God, we give glory to you all day long and constantly Praise your name. Signed, the sons of Korah. What is it that you and I are actually being called by God to discover, to learn? What are the lessons from the failures of the past, maybe in your own life, maybe in the lives of those around you, maybe in the scriptures? But what is it 
that he's wanting you and I to recognize, to acknowledge. And if we could see it for what it was and we could declare who he is, we would actually experience a revitalizing of our own faith. You can be guaranteed to live in the wilderness for the rest of your life if you'll spend your time grumbling instead of expressing gratitude, if you'll spend your time in fear of what might be instead of in faith because of what has been, or you want to spend the rest of your life in jealousy instead of joyful submission, but that's not what you were called to live like. we got lots of stories about those kinds of lives. The invitation to you and the invitation to me is that you and I, right on the edge of the promise, would say yes in faith, would express our gratitude for what God has done and who he has been, would say goodbye to jealousy and joyfully submit to his calling and his commissioning. Would you stand with us? We're going to take communion together today, and I think in light of what I see in this passage, what if... What if Korah, as one of the leaders in the nation of Israel, one of the Levites, what if Korah, and what if all 250 of those that he brought in on his rebellion, what if all of them had actually come in and expressed gratitude? What if they had just stepped up in that moment when they're right on the edge of the promised land and there's only two of the spies who are like, we can do this, we can take this. And what if they had just gotten together in that moment, banded together in that moment and been real leaders in the nation and they had stepped up in that moment and said, these boys are right. They see something that we've already forgotten just in a few short days of wandering in the wilderness. Our God is able to deliver. And if he gave us this land, and if this land is exactly what he said that it was, then we should not be remotely afraid of its inhabitants. Let's take it. What if they had stepped up right then and they had with joyful submission expressed gratitude and faith instead of fear and grumbling? They have a very different story. But it's important. It's important to remember where you've been so that you can step into where you are going. So Jesus, would you remind us, not just in this moment, but throughout the course of this day, in the week ahead and the weeks ahead, Would you bring us back over and over again that we are called to be a people of gratitude, not grumbling. We're to be a people of faith, not of fear. And we are to be a people who joyfully submit rather than spend our time in jealousy of others. And may we experience the promise that you have both here and forever in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.